26th. What was dead? Who are you? Ripley Ellen, Lieutenant First Class. Ellen Ripley died 200 years ago. Shall be reborn. What's going on here? What was destroyed? He is breeding an alien species. Will be resurrected. Wish you could understand what we're trying to do here. Now they brought it out of you. Not all the way out. You want to tell us what this is? It's a queen. She'll breed. You'll die. November 26th, only in theaters. Hey everyone, and welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, the horror movie podcast, covering every horror movie franchise, one movie and one episode at a time. I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, joined once again by my co-host, Jerry Smith. Jerry, what's going on today? Uh, you know, I'm having a good day, and plus, like, I am so excited for this episode, like, and, and not for, like, the reason that, you know, typically I'm not excited for this one the way I am, like, final chapter, Friday 13th, but I'm excited mm-hmm. about this episode because Alien Resurrection is a film that I just never have liked whatsoever, but I love talking about movies that I don't care for with people that kind of do, because it helps me kind of appreciate different things that maybe I didn't catch, so I'm I'm so stoked on this one. And I'm having a... Friday the 13th, like part nine feeling with this episode. Like I remember (laughs) heading into that show before I rewatched Jason Goes to Hell being like, oh man, I don't really want to watch this again. It's going to be garbage. And then like really loving that movie. I'm like, I was completely wrong about this. And I'm, I'm not that far along with Resurrection, but I had a lot more fun with it than I, you know, warts and all had a lot more Mm -hmm. fun with it than I expected. Um, but we also have a guest today, someone who actually really does enjoy this movie a lot, has a terrific article he sent over for us to peruse on Daily Grindhouse. Um, and I think when the call went out for us, like literally 10 months ago to do Alien, the Alien franchise, uh, our guest is the one that like shot his hand up right away and said, I want resurrection. Uh, from Daily Grindhouse, we have Rob Dean. Rob, how are we doing? Hello, I'm excited to talk about this uh, bizarre hybrid monster that came out that is Alien Resurrection. Yeah, it's a strange one. It is definitely not a movie that's afraid to swing for some fences. Um, So I always like to know from our guests when we get started is what it is about this particular entry or the franchise in general that drew you in. So what was it for you, Rob? For the franchise as a whole, um, it was just the monsters. Like I just always thought Xenomorphs looked cool. Um, I grew up outside of Boston. So when you went to the Boston Museum of Science, for a long time, they had the power loader and the queen alien, like like statues. In Wait, the- they did? Yeah. Um, and I don't know if it was just something that someone made or if they were holdovers or whatever, but like, I would pass through and I was like, it would show that scene. Like they'd have like, a short clip of the power loader coming up to the queen. I was always like, what is this thing? So I was always intrigued by it. Um, and then eventually I saw it. And Where then, outside Boston did you grow up? Uh, originally I grew up in Lincoln, Massachusetts. Okay. I grew, uh, I grew up in Drake it. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Lincoln is where uh, Paul Revere was captured. Yes. That's is from, that's all we got. Uh, and then I moved to Sandwich, Massachusetts, which is mm-hmm. on Cape Cod. Yep. 
everyone thinks is hilarious, which is fair. Um, and then for Alien Resurrection, it was a movie, the first time I saw Alien Resurrection, I didn't like it. And I was legitimately just like, what is this? What, 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 are, what are we doing here? I don't get it. Um, and then I kind of started thinking about it more. I would watch it more and I would like, you know, certain aspects of it. And I think there's just, I think there's a lot of it to appreciate individually. And I also think there's just a certain, uh, there's a layer to it that may not be intentional, but ends up becoming a sort of metatextual metaphor of itself in the end. I've wanted so many times to understand what is it about this movie, because to me, it's, it's so just interesting because there are so many elements of this movie that are like just geared a hundred percent towards what I like. Mm-hmm. Everything from the, the cast is filled for, with some of my favorite character actors of all time. I mean, Jean-Pierre Jeunet is one of my favorite directors. Uh, I mean, you have, you know, Darius Konji as a cinematographer. I mean, he shot seven in the ninth gate, you know, Nigel Phelps production designer. He did Batman, which is one of my favorite movies. Like I, I want to like, like this movie so much, but I, I, it's hard for me. So yeah, I'm, I'm stoked to talk to you about it. <laughs> so I probably best know Jean-Pierre from Amelie, which I know he wrote. Did he also direct Amelie? Yeah, yeah, with his, uh, I believe, with his uh, collaborator. Okay. Um, I always so forget his name. That's how I, I like, that. that's how I best know him. Um, and it's just like wonderful, quirky, little French romantic comedy. So it's kind of funny mm-hmm. seeing him direct this like gigantic Hollywood action movie. Um, in what was act- interesting? What's interesting? No, totally. What's interesting about that is I, I could totally understand that if, if you only know Amelie. But uh, the film he did right before this, uh, City of Lost Children, is such a good like stepping stone to Alien Resurrection, in my, mm-hmm. in my opinion. You know, like it's such a moody, just kind of tense, beautifully like rich, like like film that seems like more of a more of a bridge to this movie than like say Amelie would be. But mm-hmm. I mean, dude, I love that movie. And it seems like he got this movie based on the strength of, of that film overall. Like it was Walter Hill and David Dyler once again saying they wanted a young up and coming, like visually talented director to kind of helm the next entry, but they didn't want another David Fincher that was going <laughs> to kind of like dig in his heels and, um, kind of like insist on having his way and watching like the behind the scenes for this movie, it seemed like very much like Jean-Pierre was, I don't want to just say like that he was happy to be there. Um, Cause that wouldn't really be like an accurate, but it was more, he kind of knew that, okay, this is the script they have. This is what they want me to shoot. Um, I'm going to do the best I can with what they're giving me as opposed to like, I'm going to absolutely insist on every last detail being under my control and I'm going to dig in my heels come hell or high water. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. think, um, what Jeanette seemed to do is basically see like, all right, what are the areas that I can actually influence and change without angering the studio? And this was his first time working with like a big studio, you know, after Delicatessen and uh, City of Lost Children, those were smaller uh, studio picks or indie films. And so I think he was kind of like, basically skirting around it, but he's like, all right, I can still make it weird by through using production design by people like, you know, Pete Hoff and Nigel Phelps and um, Caro, his uh, uh, partner. Um, 
So I think that's kind of like how you navigate it as opposed to like Dave Fincher was like, no, no, I have a vision. I want to see it through. And they're like, yeah, that's, that's not what we do here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's funny too, because Jyler says like in the behind the scenes documentary that him and Hill had probably less to do with this one than any of the other entries overall. Like they just really weren't interested in returning, but he just can't resist getting in a dig going, well, but it was our idea to have her come back as a clone. So they took her idea anyway. He just couldn't resist that. Like, um, I love, I love the part in the documentary where he such a passive aggressive jackass. I, I know, so bad. I love the part where like he like he holds no punches when he talks about just how little he liked the Joss Whedon script. Mm-hmm. You know, basically saying, "Yeah, we told him it was an awful idea." You know, they they did it basically without us. Oh well, I thought it was going to end the series. Eh, oh well, no, you have Alien Four. <laughs> yeah. So this is like Joss Whedon pre, you know, blockbuster director of the Avengers and Avengers Ultron. It's really pre Joss Whedon television guru. You know, it's written before Buffy the Vampire Slayer hits the airwaves. Um, It's before Angel. It's before Firefly. It's really before all the things we know and love him for. But he's coming off of like writing Toy Story for Pixar and I think getting an Oscar nomination for that for Best Adapted Screenplay. And based on that, he is handed this massive sci-fi franchise and he's told, bring Ripley back one way or the other and we're just going to basically back up the Brinks truck to Sigourney Weaver's doorstep and say, what is it going to take for you to come back? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, initially, the whole clone idea, initially, uh, from what I've researched and read, uh, Newt was going to be the clone, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that would have been really interesting because, you know, Ripley had kind of ran her course in the story, you know, Sigourney Weaver's been very public about saying that she kind of, you know, she wanted to let go of Ripley because, you know, she didn't want to be like, Ripley wakes up again and here's another adventure. And plus she really despised the talking that were going around about alien versus predator, mm-hmm. you know, like, but then you get the script that's kind of like a little out there. I could, I could understand why she would like be drawn to come back and plus $11 million. I mean, right. You know I, mean? <laughs> I think it was more the $11 million and less of the script. That and like, she had so much input in this movie, you know, mm-hmm. not only $11 million, but she helped produce it. And she insisted that it was shot in America. So she wouldn't have to go out of the country, you know, like this was kind of, I think the one movie of the series where she definitely put her foot down. Like if I'm going to be involved, this is what's going to happen. Right. Yeah. No, she definitely was calling the shots here. The one thing I, I, I noted when watching this movie and it made me started thinking of the series as a whole is each successive alien movie really likes to rip the victories from the previous movie away from it that when you go from alien to aliens ripley defeats the first xenomorph but when she finally wakes up she wakes up to a world where everyone she knows and loves is dead her daughter is dead um and she's basically for has no nothing left to her she's stripped of her pilot license and she's completely left on her own she defeats the queen alien she forms this new sort of nuclear family with hicks and with newt 
And then in the credits of Alien 3, that new nuclear family is ripped away from her and she finds out that she's carrying a queen herself. She makes this tremendous sacrifice at the end of Alien 3 and at the beginning of Resurrection, there's a new Ripley that's been cloned from her that is still carrying this monster inside of her and now she literally gives birth to it at that point in the opening sequence. And even stretching to Prometheus and Covenant, when you end Prometheus, you have um, David and I can't remember uh, Naomi Rapace's character's name, the doctor's name now, but they fly off to find the engineers, their home planet, and you come to find out in Covenant that like she has basically been experimented on by David in this really grotesque scene. Like every successive alien movie just absolutely, it's like Lucy pulling the football away from Charlie Brown with every movie in terms of just how they snatch victory away with each title. Yeah, it's um, this is probably too grandiose, but it's actually the same sort of structure as, um, I know this is grandiose, so apologies ahead, but James Joyce's Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man Literally every chapter ends with that as a huge victory, and he's doing and the character main character's doing great, and the next and then the next chapter opens and everything's terrible again. Oh, so it's basically this idea of kind of like yeah, like in order to make the threat real, you have to you know take away that feeling of victory and reintroduce it. But also it's kind of kind of a cyclical thing, which I think Ridley Scott tried to get into more with Prometheus and Covenant a bit. What I love about the series is that I, I you know i love the fact that each film does kind of strip away the victories of the, the previous film and does its own thing and kind of puts it under a microscope you know and i i think most other series that would bother me but i think the alien franchise is the one series that i kind of expect it to do that with each film and it's a welcome thing i mean sometimes it's a little too much you know i have the i have those two books uh which is the uh the art or the art of David from Prometheus, you know, like those two books that were released for Covenant. Mm-hmm. And some of the stuff in there is just like, I don't want to see Shaw, like, you know, basically dissected <laughs> yes. in mm-hmm. art. You know what I mean? Like, cause I liked that character so much, but at the same time, I think that's, that's what makes a lot of these movies so good is because it does give you those emotions. It gives you those feelings of you do get attached to a lot of these people and it takes those people away and makes you examine how you feel about that with each film. And while like, I think the general public kind of watch, they, they watch the alien films and they, you know, it's popcorn and I understand that, but I think there's so much there to be said about like existentialism, about mortality and about so many things. And I think with every film, it's a really good look at that. I, I really think you hit the nail on the head when you say existentialism, there is this theme that runs throughout each of the alien movies that the universe is this vast, unfeeling and uncaring place. And we're all just searching to carve out our own little corner in it. And the universe doesn't so much care if you succeed or not. Mm -hmm. It's really up to you. And I think throughout the first three alien movies, you see um, as each story, as each story progresses, Ripley finding herself like more and more out of place with wherever she is and tr- struggling to find a kind of trying to find a, a place that she can live and exist. And I think that's taken to like a really um, weird and wonderful conclusion here in that 
the Ripley you get is not even the real Ripley. And not only is it a clone, but it's this odd Ripley human alien hybrid of a clone. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's all been tied into um, like since, you know, the first one that there's a weird connection between death and birth, right? When, whenever the chestburster is born, it has to kill its host. And so there's always this weird tie between what, you know, is creative and what's destructive. Um, and, you know, you always have the most analytical slash evil uh, people usually being like uh, being in awe of what the xenomorph can do and what it is. Um, and so, yeah, there is that constant uh, tie between those two. And what it also does very well is it doesn't just, you know, basically rob the victory of the last one, but it doesn't, it doesn't end up without being like that last one doesn't matter. You know, like too many like sequels were like, yeah, we thought we got them all, but we didn't. And so uh, don't worry about it. And so, and just like just pushes ahead. But this one's like, no, what happened happened and it mattered, but then more bad things happened. Which I think right. is, uh, it hits a lot heavier and is sold very well, usually on emotions of, you know, Sigourney Weaver and the other cast. Totally. And uh, one thing about this film that I actually do like, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a thing that I typically despise when movies do it, like when uh, Terminator Dark Fate, uh, which is a movie I did not like at all. Uh, uh, I don't think anyone did. But uh, anyways, like when, you know, Sarah Connor shows up and she's talking about like Skynet and Cyberdyne and all this stuff. They're like, what? What are you talking about? Like, that's, they're, they're like everything that we had like thought was a huge threat for like two or three movies, you know, yeah. we're basically told, oh, it's not a big deal or whatever. This is something new. And what, but what I love about this movie is the arrogance in the kind of like, well, this isn't Wayland yutani Corp. Like, this is the U.S. military. We got it covered, you know? Like, don't even worry about Wayland yutani They're nothing. Whereas, like, the first three films, they, I mean, in a lot of ways, they were kind of, you know, more villainous than the Xenomorphs. The idea, too, and I think you made note of it here, is like, oh, we're the military. We can't do anything wrong at this point. And they're very quickly dismissed by Ripley. It's like, well, you're still going to die either way at this point. It's just one... Uh, mechanism being replaced by the other at that point. Before we dive like deep into like kind of the text of the movie, Rob, you had this really interesting article uh, that you shared with us ahead of time about the movie is kind of a metatextual comment on filmmaking itself. And I kind of would love to hear you kind of speak on that. This idea that the movie is exploring what it is to kind of have to make one of these tentpole franchise pictures in a time where that's kind of common now where it wasn't it still wasn't like the norm i think to have all of these ginormous franchises repeat itself one after another after another yeah absolutely um i don't think it was the intent of joss whedon um but i think it's a happy accident so um basically when i was thinking about i'm thinking about it for like years before i wrote that thing um is that Alien Resurrection really feels like if you took it, look at the Xenomorphs as the Alien franchise. So they used to say, all right, last movie we did was Alien 3. We need to bring it back. Uh, we also need to bring back Ripley. So that's what they're going to do now. Um, we need to make things still like similar enough that people enjoy it. So we need to have like still have those uh, Xenomorphs around killing people and all of that and but we also need to add new elements to it so we need to you know now ripley is uh you know a chimera type hybrid between the xenomorph and a human um, we also 
have, you know, a plucky uh, group that's coming along that's going to inject new blood, but then they're quickly disposed of. And it's basically the idea of, you know, how you're able to take what you like about a franchise as a filmmaker, what you like about a franchise, preserve it, but also do enough new and different things that people don't feel like they're, it's being a retreat. And then what comes out of it is this weird uh, xenomorph human baby thing that's born at the very end that doesn't quite work, but kind of does and is something that doesn't belong in either world and is just there. Um, so it does feel very much like Alien Resurrection is this meditation on like what happens when you revive a project that previously has had, you know, uh, mixed results, but it was, could have a yield of big success in terms of dollars or as a weapon. Um, and then what happens like when you make changes with that, what, how you bring certain things back into it and what their consequences are of that. And you can also look at something like the scene where Ripley meets uh, Ripley eight, it's one through seven as, you know, false starts of those various drafts where like, Oh no, now someone else starts or now there's a new clone or now uh, they're on earth or whatever it is. And then those have all been uh, cannibalized or used as they move towards Ripley 8. But eventually what they came up with is this new version that is slightly odd, doesn't quite fit, but is if you squint, is kind of reminiscent at the same time. Jesus Christ, that is good. <laughs> it seems... <laughs> I mean, because it seems really spot on. Because when you, when you like... When you take a step back from the movie and you look at, okay, the military scientists are the new Wayland Utani. Mm -hmm. You have like, instead of having the ragtag group of Marines that you did in aliens, you have um, space pirates basically that really, you know, armed to the teeth, wisecracking group of rebels basically that kind of fulfill that role. You have, um, the xenomorphs that you know and are familiar with, and then you try to introduce this new kind of uber threat at the end with that um, human-alien hybrid, which, by the way, that end, the way it meets this end is so grotesque. Yeah. Um, it's probably the first monster in the, whole, in the whole series that, as a viewer, I felt any empathy for, um, because there definitely were these humanistic qualities to it overall, and we'll get into the end later on, but, oh, I actually found myself having some feels for it. Um, even if it didn't, even if it was a little bit ridiculous. So yeah, you can see all of these things where they're trying to like not fit a square peg in a round hole, but maybe carve that round hole out a little bit to make this new peg fit. I think some of uh, the issues I have with that, and I agree hundred percent with what Rob said, because I mean, I, man, that is spot on. I can totally see that now, which actually, like I said, makes me appreciate it a little more. Uh, I think just some of the directions that it, it went, like, I don't mind weird, you know, like I'm mm -hmm. pretty fond of weird actually, but I just think when you take a series that even though the first three films are like vastly different from each other, if you take one where it's just like, it just feels so out of place sometimes that it just like, to me, it's always felt like, it feels like it kind of screams like this is a new hip take on like alien, you know, but at the same time to me, it feels like closer to, you know, like a film like supernova or an alien knockoff than a film that's within the mm -hmm. same franchise, you know, like I think Joss Whedon, you know, good or bad 
you could totally tell that he wrote this movie because in a lot of ways, more than an alien film, it feels like it would be like a spinoff of like Firefly. You know, yeah. like like I could totally see, you know, Ron Perlman and his gang being <laughs> in Firefly. And I think that that and there's a lot of choices that are made that that just feels out of place. You know, I'm not always looking for something just super doom and gloom and, and, and uh, you know, bleak all the time. But at the same time, like I rewatched this movie again this morning and that basketball scene. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so painful. It's so painful to watch. And it's just like, you know, like I understand that Ripley A isn't Ripley and I, I can appreciate that. But when you take a character that is so, I think, well-written and fleshed out in the first three films, and I understand the motivation, you know, like the spliced DNA would give her these abilities. I get that. But at the same time, Ripley having this, being kind of like the superhuman-like character, I, I think it takes a lot of the danger and the humanity out of it. And, and I think that's what made her so special is that she was kind of an everyday kind of character. And you could relate to that. Whereas in this film... You know what I mean? Like, it's just such a different take that I, th I think it's a little hard for me. It's yeah. definitely a Joss Whedonism that in order to show female empowerment, it has to be a superpowered female character at this point. It's a through line that runs through a lot of his work. Mm -hmm. uh, Ripley here is like a superpowered version of Ripley that can like slam dunk basketballs and you know, like squish them in her hands and can communicate with the aliens telepathically. You have Buffy the Vampire Slayer where you have like a superpowered teenage cheerleader. And when that series end, how does the female empowerment message get through? It's like every potential young woman is a slayer at that point. They all have superpowers. And then you mentioned Firefly. You have um, Summer Glau's character of River, again, being this kind of super strong, super powered, kind of engineered female. It's it's how he writes his female protagonists that like in order to be special, they have to be some sort of like super powered yeah. character. They can't just be very smart or clever or, you know, really good at what they do. They have to be kind of like Superman. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that carries through the rest of the cast in this film. I mean, um, you know, you look at Call, you look at Winona Ryder's character. She's like, oh, well, I'm a... Very, I'm basically a replicant from Blade Runner, but very special. Right. Uh, and you know, and and then all the other female characters uh, just don't make it, and or don't really have much of a name or character. Yeah, I have to be like these superpowered types. And then uh, also to uh, another point, Jerry, about another reason why this kind of feels weird, besides you know the weird Space Jam like moments, um, is that the other the previous three movies kind of all focused on like a blue collar type or the everyman type setting. So you had, you know, literally the industrial workers in 1979, you know, in the first alien were just doing their job. Uh, then you have, you know, army basically just regular Marine um, uh, that are just, you know, they are in there, that's they're performing their job. Then you have people uh, on a prison planet who were used to be prisoners. So none of them were all basically, no one was like specialized or like super cool or anything. They just like, this is, you know, as cool as like Hicks is they were still like, yeah, we're just doing our job. This is just our existence and you've brought this into our world now. And then with Resurrection, the army type is basically mostly like faceless, but they're like super evil 
like J.E. Freeman is just like the most menacing as he can be. Like he's like, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a bad guy. Yeah, I'm just letting you guys know up front. Like I'm evil. You'll find out later, but seriously. And then you have like Brad Dorf being as crazy as possible. And then you have this yeah, Firefly dry run of these specialized, you know, space pirates of like, oh, this person can like build anything or this one's a crack shot. And like, so it does have that element where it just feels like slightly removed because the other ones were basically regular people, albeit in a space, future space environment, facing something that was, you know, very impossible or extraordinary. Do you think that maybe Whedon's disdain for what ended up happening is what inspired him to kind of take that on again and flesh it out in a different way in Firefly? Because, I mean, I, I pulled up a quote from Whedon, and it, uh, I'll read it really quick. I love, I uh, he the said, quote. I love this quote. He said, it wasn't a question of doing everything differently, although they changed the ending. It was mostly a matter of doing everything wrong. They said the lines, mostly, but they said them all wrong. They cast it wrong, and they designed it wrong, and they scored it wrong. They did everything wrong that they could possibly do. There's actually a fascinating lesson in filmmaking because everything they did reflects back to the script or looks like something from the script. And then he basically says, it's just that they executed it in such a ghastly fashion as to render it almost unwatchable. And what's interesting to me about that quote <laughs> is my feelings are the quite are, are quite the opposite. Like mm-hmm. it isn't the casting because I think Jay Freeman is amazing. He's one of my favorite character actors. You know, rest in peace, Brad Dourif. I mean, Raymond Cruz. This is the best you know? cast since the first <laughs> Alien. <laughs> it is. <laughs> like, like there isn't a single weak actor in this movie. The production design is gorgeous. <laughs> the direction is wonderful. The thing that the that just takes me out of it is one hundred percent the script itself. Lawrence, so like I I, I feel Lawrence, like he was so yeah. Go ahead. Lawrence Olivier and Marlon Brando could merge into one superpowered being, come down from the heavens tomorrow, and they still could not make a line like "Who do I have to fuck to get off the ship?" Work. I'm <laughs> sorry, like you can't, you know. And I say this to someone that, by and large, like loves Joss Whedon's work. Like, mm-hmm. Buffy is one of my top t- all-time favorite shows. I love Angel, Firefly. Like I am a, a Whedon apologist, but this is, you know, this is not his best work. Let's yeah. put it that way. This is, it's a fun, and I think maybe if, if it wasn't a Ripley story, if it was just like a new character that you were following, maybe I would feel different because it is a fun, what I get from this, it's a fun 90s action horror movie. Like mm-hmm. it's enjoyable. It's kind of a, a fun little romp, I guess. Yeah. And I think it's, um, this also it just reminds me of like, the line, one of the lines he wrote for X-Men, you know, um, you know what happens when a toe gets hit by lightning? Same thing as everything else. It just <laughs> sorry. You kind of understand, like, oh, if it's read a certain way, that could maybe work. Not really, but you could kind of understand it. But you're like, no, that it's bad from the yeah. direction on. It doesn't help at all either. So I just have this feeling. He's like, well, they did that wrong. I was like, well, they didn't do it wrong. They did it maybe differently than when you attended. I don't know. Just a weird. It's a very weird uh, ownership over it that it seems weird to me. I just, I just hear that quote and I'm like, you know, it wasn't the script. It was the design, the direction, the acting. It was everything else. It's, it's like if you can insert the principal Skinner, it's the children that are wrong. Gif, <laughs> like right there. Basically, it's really funny to me that there's like this no ownership whatsoever 
of it. Um, so it's just bizarre because to me, like the movie looks great and there are some sequences in it that are like, they're fucking awesome. Like the chestburster sequence in this where you have the character basically being held up and like shot to pieces and then it almost looks like upgrade a little bit like David Marshall Green in upgrade where he's completely flailing around like beating the shit out of people like that is a fun sequence overall and I'm like give me more of that so it's not you know it's definitely not I think the way the movie looks and it's definitely not that it's like the um, creature design is awesome in this movie Um, and there is some like the sequence where the aliens are all in that holding cell and they realize that like oh if we bleed we can get out of here and they turn on like the weak link of the litter and kill it just so they can get out like that is a very cool kind of ingenious idea in order to how to get them escape like that shows some evolution of the monsters overall and it's just it's kind of fucked up to think about it so i really like that that seems basically the equivalent of the xenomorphs like staging like a prison shank. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like that is the xenomorphs like handing each other a shiv to, to mm-hmm. take one of them out. Like I love that scene. And like speaking on the Whedon thing, all the things that he hates are the reasons that I want to like this movie. Right. Because I look at it and I'm like, God, this is one of the most beautiful films in the series. You know? And, and, what they did accomplish with this movie is impressive when they were, when you, you know, even think about like the things that were up against them. Every other alien film kind of had like big production area, you know, in, in London and stuff. This movie, you know, Sigourney Weaver wanted to shoot it in, in the U S you know, they almost didn't get a chance to film it at Fox because at the same time, you know, Titanic starship troopers, Jurassic park two, all these movies were being shot there. So Resurrection kind of had left over the spaces, whatever was left. And I think with that being said, they, I mean, Jonet like executed such a really just gorgeous movie, but it, for me, it's a hundred percent the writing. And like, it's, it's tough for me because I, I don't want to dislike this movie because there's so much I love about it, but I think just some of the choices, it's just so difficult. Yeah. You know, the one thing I, I, I have gotten from this show recording it over a year is this newfound appreciation for Brad Dourif because everything I've seen him in, he tends to be one of the highlights of it overall. And apropos of nothing, like last night I put on um, The Exorcist 3 for the first time oh. probably since I watched it on VHS um, a couple, like 20 years ago at this point. And um, the scenes with Duriff and George C. Scott um, a year before Silence of the Lambs come out, to mm-hmm. me, like, rival the work of, of Anthony Hopkins and, um, and um, Jodie Foster. So don't tell me, like, oh, it's the cast was wrong in this movie. Like, Brad yeah. Duriff, he's phenomenal in this movie, is giving off this, like, genius but super creep and the oh. scenes with him at the end where he's trapped in all the alien goo um and just still totally enraptured by these beings like are just wonderful they're just like really bizarre and unnerving and like i'm i'm there for it 
Yeah, yeah. Brad Dourif has been, I think, a lifelong hero of mine. Like, even being like a kid in grade school, I was obsessed with that dude, which is weird. <laughs> uh, and and also, I mean, Exorcist Three is like my second favorite film of all time. Like, mm-hmm. I worship that movie. I have since I saw it in the theater. Uh, but uh, also, if you haven't yet, watch Eyes of Laura Mars because he's so good in that movie. Okay. Uh, yeah, Carpenter uh, wrote the uh, early draft of that movie but anyways uh yeah yeah i mean you have brad durif who is so fun to watch in this movie you know because like that guy is so devoted to every character he plays or like j.e freeman i mean that guy like i could watch anything that he did i mean wild at heart miller's crossing you know like he's such a good actor there's no way in hell that it is like the wrong people cast mm-hmm. if anything that is one of the things that amplifies this movie from what it would have been with a lesser cast i think mm-hmm. absolutely and i think it sounds a lot like uh, what stephen king's objections were to kubrick's shining right where he's like well everyone knows jack nicholson's gonna go crazy like, well yeah but you also everyone's gonna know the plot of the movie like basic form of the movie before they go see it anyways so but that's he's not making the type of movie that you wrote also he's or the type of movie that your book was so like and brad dorf also wasn't just like crazy like he's the one who cares about all this stuff mm-hmm. um you know he cares about ripley he wants her to live and he like actually treats her like a person and then he also is fascinated and cares about the xenomorphs maybe too much but at the same time he also has like a slight um distance from them and like a weird uh a coldness or where he's like, he can just recognize it, even though he knows it's bad or it's destructive. He's like, no, it's still an amazing thing to witness. Oh, totally. I, I also think that the character of Purvis, uh, played by Leland Orser, is a character that I wish would get more recognition because that is another character actor that I just, I mean, I, can, I will watch anything that he is in. I mean, his one scene in Seven, I think, steals the whole movie almost. <laughs> you know, and I, I, the character of Purvis, I think, think it like i said i I feel like he's so interesting i mean he's basically being used as a vessel for the xenomorph but he still tries to help the people stop them knowing what's coming his way you know yeah and it's a really wonderful kind of sweaty performance as well like you have a character that basically has this tremendous you know from the minute that you he's introduced like he's cannon fodder in Mm. that base basically and he gives this like really kind of awesome sweaty energy to that overall. So I think you're right. Like he definitely adds to it overall. I, I kind of want to talk a bit about Sigourney Weaver because I That's think good. that given the material that she has here and where they take the character, I still think it's a great performance by her. I think you can, to your point, Jerry, when you say like she had a lot of input into this movie. Um, yep. The $11 million definitely didn't hurt but she's not phoning a performance in here. And um, that scene where she confronts the seven attempts before Mm -hmm. they got the cloning right is absolutely horrifying on a visceral level. Oh, totally. And no, I I don't think she phoned it in at all. Uh, You know, I I think for me, the characters are so different. It's hard, but that being said, I think she gives 150%. I mean, that scene that you're talking about, like it's, I think it's the best scene in the whole movie for me, that in the end. Uh, but the other scene that I think she just does such a great job with is the scene where she's kind of sitting alone by herself and Winona Ryder comes in there. Like it's such a, you know, and like with the knife and all that stuff, 
mm-hmm. feel like that scene is so good that and it has like some like has a very like almost a cross between like a motherly and a kind of somewhat of a sensual vibe mm-hmm. that it kind of gives you like this off-putting tone but it's it's just compelling to watch i think i think that she knew exactly what she was getting into and the script allowed her to basically go for it and i i love that about it absolutely um yeah that scene with Winona writer is like very does have that weird intimacy which is at the one point you know there is that kind of mother daughter element to it at the other time there's also a sense that they're both not what people think they are and they both have you know they're not what they appear to be so you know that, that would ends up kind of playing back when you like when you think back about it like that's that connection there um and then yeah i think it's an interesting evolution because in all the other movie in the previous three movies she was defiant and strong um but also still scared um where she you know she'd be like this is gonna especially like especially towards like the end three she's like this is gonna be bad everyone's gonna die i'm warning you all but i also know that like bad things are going to come and I'm, I don't want that to happen. And then in this one, she's all those things, but she's not as scared. She basically, because it's, she has that weird kinship to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that's obviously a play on that trope, you know, where you become the thing that you hunt or whatever you're, you know, the two sides of the same coin, but it does, um, it creates that new wrinkle that I get, again, uh, distances her from the previous three films, but it creates something new. Although Do we look- think that it removes something that's essential from the, character of ripley though probably i think um because you don't really have again that's the problem with everyone else being like super cool 90s people mm-hmm. the other characters because you don't have anyone that's like really scared um except for leland orser <laughs> but everyone would be like yeah he should be scared he's not gonna make it like everyone knows this she's like yeah that makes sense but like no one else is really like freaked out by it. everyone's like i'll do whatever i i don't care who i have to kill to get off this thing or right all these sweet guns i can do whatever she's like all, all right so you have everyone <laughs> and you have um ron perlman saying things like well i'll get you off like i don't know if i'll be able to get you off the ship but i'll get you off and it's just like ooh, so bad so 90s so like this movie could not have been written <laughs> any time except for like between 1992 and 1999. <laughs> the only time. Like such a like time capsule of a movie. Yes. That, that and, you know, uh, you know, speaking on like, you know, not in, like none of the characters really being scared. I think my biggest issue is none of the viewers are too, you mm-hmm. know, like, <laughs> like aliens was like a full on action movie, but mm-hmm. there was still that kind of tense, vibe that you're you know it kept you on the edge of your seat alien 3 was bleak as hell and it just gave you this uncomfortable off-putting feeling whereas like alien resurrection it looks great and it's weird and it's quirky but like you never feel like anything's at stake you know what i mean like it's just it, it's it feels like the safest movie in the series sure i, I feel like they try to replicate or they were like all right we can't make it scary for a reason or they couldn't figure out how to but they're like but what if we just made it like super gory and like really visceral and gooey as possible and just like because i think it is probably the goriest movie oh yeah different cuts but like i think that they were like all right that'll count as scary well well, that's not really the same thing i mean there are some tremendous effects in this movie overall and it is like a very pulpy organic movie i think by the time you get to part 
four in any long running franchise. And you know, at the difference between say an alien and a Friday the 13th and a nightmare on Elm street is there is this sense of distance between them. Like it's five years between alien three and alien resurrection. There's like six or seven years between the two entries before that. Um, but by the time you get to like Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, Freddy's no longer scary. Like Freddy is the reason you're there. And at this point, there's really no mystery at all into the xenomorphs at this point. You know what they are. You know how they're created. Um, the only thing you can really do is add more of them. But aliens had already done that. So you have to do something different. And I think this gives you kind of like a space pirate movie and to me i didn't go into it to be scared but i went into it thinking like i'm gonna have fun with this movie and by and large it works like it's a it's a, i guess it's a time capsule movie but it's and a lot of bits are like really like that underwater sequence to me is a lot of fun the yeah um ron perlman doing like his best mary lou retton and doing a gymnastics routine to bend over <laughs> and shoot his guns like that to me is you know i mean it's a it's a fun night out at the the theater basically yeah yeah it's a lot of fun and i think speaking on what rob said earlier about what got him into the series you know kind of thinking xenomorphs are cool if there's a movie in the series where it's a hundred percent like wow these guys are cool i think it is this movie because i i love the designs of them in this movie and i i think when we talk about uh, definitely Alien 3 and, and this one, I, I think that maybe we haven't given enough credit to Tom Woodruff Jr., mm-hmm. who, I mean, played the lead Alien 3. He played three different xenomorphs in this movie. He played the lead mm-hmm. Alien in AVP and, you know, Requiem. Like, he, I think he brings so much to that, that character that, like, I, I can't imagine being covered with K.Y. Jelly as much as this guy Oof. was. Should have seen me in the 2000s, man. (laughs) But like, (laughs) right? No, but like the design of the Xenomorphs in this movie, like it's 100% a movie that I think if I saw when I was 10 years old, I would have like, you know, wide eyes and just love it because they look awesome in this movie. And I think that that's one of the many, like, or one of the things about this movie that I do appreciate is it seems like they took a little extra time to give those people that wanted to see more Xenomorphs, but in a different way, exactly what they wanted. I agree. And I'm going to commit some sacrilege here. I like the look of the aliens in this movie and their like enclave. Um, and that scene at the end where you have all of like the alien goo and the humans trapped. Mm-hmm. I think that that looks better than aliens does to me. I always look at aliens and I, and I love, I think it's a great movie and I really enjoy it but I I never get lost in the world like I do with Alien. And I know I had talked about that before. I always feel like I'm looking at a set. And when I look at the creature work here and I look at the effect work here, I think it looks so good. I think it looks like really organic and really beautiful and disgusting at the same time. Yeah, there's a real sense. It reminded me watching now or rewatching it for this. I like had like a sense of like, oh yeah, this is like Hannibal. Like how Hannibal would have like those grotesque, like organic things put together. But mm. so, and so I'm hoping that this was a influence on Brian Fuller. But yeah, there's just that sense like the pit that she falls in with all the other aliens and mm-hmm. goo. 
which doesn't really make sense because they say there's 12 aliens, but then there's like 30, but that's another point. We don't have to go into it. Um, but anyway, so she felt like that thing is just such a weird um, like spiral that you can just get lost in. And it does have this real, the entire film has a real tactile right. feeling where you can almost like feel how gross and everything is. And that's why like it, there is that odd disconnect between something that's very almost grounded or very um, immediate. And then you have these, again, like, superstar space badasses then you're like well those aren't as grounded or realistic i mean um like in the basketball scene when gary dorton thinks that uh ripley's being mean so he hits her in the face with a dumbbell and you're like oh. <laughs> i thought that this morning too i was like that's a little extreme it's like whoa that really escalated there he was just he was, she was just rebuffing a horrible sexual harassment ban. Like, what? No. So it was just odd. But yeah, so I think there's that, that's the disconnect there. It's like these, the attitude of the characters versus like everything around them. Or as Joss would even say, everything that was wrong. You know what I think we really need to do, though? I think eventually we need to release the, uh, the weed and cut of Alien Resurrection. Let's get it trending. Let's not, <laughs> let's not do that. Look, it's been a really long week. It's been a really horrible week. Oh, we I know. <laughs> we don't. We don't need that right now. That's the last thing the world needs. Um, let's talk. Speaking of like tactile, grotesque things, let's maybe end with our discussion of the alien-human hybrid, which I think is a really. It doesn't completely work, but it's a really fascinating creature because I see this thing. Like, is everyone here a parent? Like, I have a kid. Jerry, I know you are. Rob, I don't know if you do. I am not, no. Okay. Um, legacy, but thank what's, you. For... <laughs> what's that? So I will die alone without a legacy, but thank you for... Well, uh, you have that to look forward to, no problem. Yeah. Um, I actually used to, like, you could, there's, like, kids left in carriages all the time at these stores. So you could probably just pick one up at a Target and bring See one that? home. And... All right, cool. So um, I used to, when my daughter was really young, I used to tell her, when you go to the store with mom, yell, help, you're not my mom. And <laughs> see what happens. And Yeah. I'll be married 16 years this week. So, hey, or 14 years. This a week. miracle. Yeah, it's a miracle we've stayed together 14 years married. Um, I got off track there, really off track there. Um, but I see this alien as like, if your toddler had the strength of a grown man basically like you had this like screaming shrieking thing that is just angry and pissed off at the world and what does it do it destroys everything around it this is essentially what a toddler would do if it was like man-sized basically um but it's really fascinating to see this creature because even though it looks grotesque and more alien-like um, I feel like its emotions are far more human than they are xenomorph. I think that, that that actually is shown with the way that Ripley reacts to it when it dies. Mm -hmm. You know, there there is that attachment, and I think that she feels that connection with it because there is, I think, more of a human thing to it than xenomorph. You know, she cries when it you know when it dies, and I I, I think it's such a good. See that I will give props to Whedon for that. Actually, he didn't. He say they changed the ending. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, maybe maybe not him. <laughs> I'll give that wrong decision, according to him. You know, props to whoever did it. But I mean, I, I think it's such an interesting direction to take the film, to have that kind of hybrid and kind of show the potential of maybe where the series could have went had they continued with that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I also think um, a lot of it also comes from the fact that it has eyes, which none of the other ones yeah. do. So much of the act, like it constantly looks, it shows so much of the emotion through the eyes of either being like angry and rejecting its alien self when it kills the queen or like pleading for um, Ripley when it you know, finds her in that weird nest or when it's dying. Um, it's also the only creature in the series I can think of, maybe I'm wrong, that is like screaming in pain. Like even like, yes. I guess there's that one alien when they're busting out of the prison, they shank. Um, you know, I, there's that one that's like, no, don't do this. And it's like, ah, it's done. But this one is like, it's a long time to watch anything. Um, Suffer. Any, like, yeah, any horror character who's this prolonged and this torturous. I'm like watching like uh, its intestines spill out and then get sucked back out. And then like watching like limbs get ripped up. Like most of the time we want that to happen to villains. Like, you know, it has to be a very um, cathartic end. It has to be like, they have to really suffer for doing all the bad things they've done in that movie. So that's why we want them to be like, you know, shot up a bunch of times or blown to pieces or whatever. But in this case, like it goes on for so long and with so much crying of pain and anger and confusion that it becomes like not, there is no longer that catharsis of like, well, she beat the aliens. You're like, oh, this thing didn't ask to be brought into this world and now it's being like forced out because it doesn't belong. No, you're absolutely right. I look at this almost like Karloff and Frankenstein's monster. Um, at the end of The Bride of Frankenstein, where he realizes that he's this creature that doesn't belong in the world and essentially sacrifices himself at that point because he doesn't. And throughout both uh, James Whale's Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, you have this creature that was, it's basically born out of hubris um, and mankind thinking that it can play God. And then as soon as he's brought into the world, he's, hated by his creator, discarded by his creator, and hated by the world around him. You very much see that with this alien hybrid creature where it's born for no other reason that you have a military and a group of scientists that think that it can weaponize it, or really in some cases, and with I think with Durov's character, just to kind of see what would happen. Like, mm-hmm. we yes. can create it, so why don't we? Um, but it doesn't have any sort of guidance or moral center or moral compass to help it. It just is. And I've said this in other, and in our aliens show, you can make a case that the xenomorphs are not the villains of any of the alien movies. It's always man in mm-hmm. these movies and man's hubris. Like the aliens are just doing what they're supposed to do biologically. Yeah, absolutely. And also I think the main uh, issues <laughs> in terms of just aesthetics, I think it's a very, because it's so uh, asymmetrical, it is very like jagged and jingly mm-hmm. thing. Um, it's fascinating, but I do think that the little nub of a nose and the tongue, mm-hmm. as a to a in the whatever uh, proboscis, is just very is an odd choice, but it still kind of works. And I think it's that thing where there's this thing where like, when you look at something that's so ugly, it becomes cute again. You know, like when you like, you can see like those, like those like world's ugliest dogs, you know, it's actually kind of adorable. And it's how it's awkward and weird looking. Mm-hmm. Um, and it happens with it mostly again, because of the emoting, because you understand like, Oh, this thing doesn't really work and it's not what I'm used to, but it seems like it's got a lot, got a lot of problems that it didn't ask for. So. <laughs> no, I was just going to uh, ask what you guys think of the actual design of it. Like I was reading earlier today, how initially, uh, Jeanne wanted to have like full on genitalia for like human genitalia on it. And I feel like that would have been like, that would have been maybe, a choice. <laughs> yeah. That would have been a choice, you know, having this alien 
but I, I, I love the design of the creature. And I, I think the eyeballs add such, mm-hmm. the fact that it has eyes adds such a level of like sympathy that you have towards it. Like it's, it's heartbroken when it knows it's going to die and all that stuff happens, you know, like it, it very much considers Ripley its mother and like who wants to be killed by their mom? You know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like it's such a tragic character in this movie. I think the design works as it is. I think that it's a really good blend of both the xenomorph and this very human looking creature. I definitely don't think I need to see an alien that's kind of swinging dong. Like, I think that would just be super distracting in a movie. Um, But as it is, I think like to your point, uh, Rob, like having those really soulful eyes behind it and the nose and the tongue as opposed to like the proboscis that kind of pops out, give it an element that you can, as an audience, kind of identify with a lot more than the typical xenomorph. um, And that do allow for like a degree of empathy when it's eventually destroyed. Yeah. And one thing uh, I was just thinking about now is it's kind of interesting that I guess I'm guessing that really Scott isn't a fan of this because it could have been part of, if only for an Easter egg, like part of David's like uh, evolution of the xenomorph. Mm-hmm. Like you could have had like the head of one of these things because it basically would have been, again, another human, uh, you know, xenomorph hybrid or engineer hybrid, whatever. Um, but I guess Felix's like, nah, that, I don't need that. We're good. I get the feeling he hasn't watched any of the other movies outside of Aliens. He's like, I see what they did there. All right. Yeah. I just kind of get that feeling that he's like, eh. Like, I know that when it came to Alien versus Predator, James Cameron was like, yeah, it might be the third best one in the series. Like, he really liked and kind of got the vibe they were going for. And when they asked Ridley Scott what he thought, he's like, I couldn't be bothered to watch it. (laughs) So, you know, he's like, he's like, I have never seen it. So I get the feeling that maybe he's never even seen this movie. I hope he's just like a huge Requiem fan. He's like, I, for some reason, I see <laughs> and I love it. <laughs> he's like, I, I, I love the lighting in Requiem. <laughs> that would be fantastic. <laughs> All right. So do we have anything else to say about Alien Resurrection? I think I'm good, unless you guys do. I'm good at the moment. I think we're good. I think that, you know, it's a, to me, it is with how it stands out from the others in the alien series is that it, it definitely peers peels away from the really kind of thoughtful deconstruction of death you get in alien three and that really Scott returns to in Prometheus and covenant and just goes for like a balls out action horror movie. That's a lot of fun. That and, you know, every series has one. And I think throughout this episode, I've realized that this is very much the Jason goes to hell or the Halloween six of the series. So I I appreciate it for taking that swing, even if it doesn't hit most of the time for me. I don't know when you say that, if you mean that, like, this is really terrible and should be shunned, or if you mean, like, at least tries to do something different with that's 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 what I mean. You know, even though it doesn't work for me per se... Like, I do appreciate that it tried to do something very mm-hmm. different, you know? And what it did well, in my opinion, mm-hmm. is create a visually rich, just interesting time of watching a movie. You know, I think the performances are great. Fuck you, Joss Whedon. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the art direction, the set design, I think the direction's great. Uh, you know, and it's all right. So... Rob, where can our listeners find your work and what do you have in the pipeline right now? 
Sure. Uh, you can find our work at dailygrindhouse.com. Um, I also write for various other sites, but you can find most of my writing there or at, uh, you can find me on Twitter at neurotic monkey. How did you come up with that handle out of curiosity? It's because when I was in high school and I was taking a, a psych class in high school and, uh, they were talking about how the formation of our brains work, our human brains work because of the frontal lobe. And he said, well, you know, most animals don't have that. That's why you don't have a neurotic squirrel. And I was like, I guess that just makes all of us just neurotic monkeys. And I was like, I'm going to stick with for decades, apparently. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been a blast having you on. And we definitely would love to have you on for future installments as well as we kind of continue this wild, wacky journey through all these franchises here. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much. It's been a great fun. I love uh, talking about it. Also, quick shout out to Michael Wincott. Doesn't get enough love. Needs to be more stuff. Yeah, I love that, dude. So, Jerry, what are we returning with next week? Well, we are going to go into a film that uh, a lot of people do not like, but I think I can speak for both of us in saying that we definitely do, and that is Prometheus. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love that movie with a passion. It is probably my fourth favorite in the series. Uh, and, you know, sometimes it's my third favorite. I, it's such a good movie, and I can't wait to do it. And I have a feeling it's going to be a pretty lengthy episode. I do, too. I think I, I'm already trying to schedule out some time to get my notes started here. Um, we're going to be joined once again by Lindsay Travis. Um, she's coming back for Prometheus, and I believe Danielle Ryan is going to be joining us as well, as long as we can all make our kind of schedules work out here. I think this movie is kind of a perfect companion to the first Alien movie, and I'm really excited to talk about this one. Um, I enjoyed it when I saw it in theaters. I thought it was gorgeous to look at, and I've come to like appreciate more and more, like each viewing of it, I appreciate more and more of what it's trying to do. The thing that I definitely want to hammer out over the next two episodes, the one thing I can't figure out is the timeline of this movie compared to the first Alien. Because it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, well, I mean, Scott said it was like a, what, a prequel to a prequel to Alien. <laughs> yeah. But it's like there's a 20-year gap between yeah. this movie and the first Alien. But when you first walk into the derelict in the first Alien, everything in there looks thousands of years old. So yeah. I've got some questions. Also, uh, really quickly, speaking of Prometheus, uh, the Blu-ray that is kind of easy to come by uh, doesn't have that really extensive documentary on it. But mm -hmm. if any of our listeners want to pick up uh, that really great documentary on Prometheus, Amazon has it, the special bundle right now. It's the 3D, the Blu-ray, the DVD, and the digital copy in one set with that documentary. I got it for like $14 yesterday. So just to let you know. I think I might have to do that then. Hold on. So it's cheap money. All right. So we will be back next week. Uh, you can find us over at Pod and Pendulum over on Twitter. Um, leave us a review wherever you get. If you could, leave us a review wherever you are getting um, your podcast from. They go a long way to helping us out and helping us um, gain new listeners. And once again, folks, thank you for tuning in. And we'll be back next week with Prometheus.